0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, I talk to the University of Toronto professor Ju Young Lee, author of "Blowing Up, Rap Dreams in South Central. This conversation focuses on the book as well as Professor Lee's experience writing the book. For some context, set in South Central Los Angeles, Professor Lee worked in and around Project Bloat, a venue, open mic, group that functions as a kind of hub for a large underground hip hop community in Los Angeles. For some vocabulary, blowing up refers to getting attention, fame, money, recognition, and wider society, and a Bloatian is a member of Project Bloat. Our conversation covers topics from what it means to be an insider in ethnography to Professor Lee's experiences defending the block from intruders with his dance skills. Professor Ju Young Lee, welcome to Office Hours.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, so I read Blown Up over the last week or so, and I've really enjoyed it a lot. Um, Thank you, man. Thank you. Actually, I came across your work... Uh, earlier in my career, it was, it was an article. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, I don't, I don't, I'm not too good at like searching uh, journals and stuff. So I, so when I'm trying to learn about something, I grab a reader Mm -hmm. and I found this urban ethnography reader and you wrote about, or you had an article in there and it was, it was really cool. It was about battling on the corner. I think it was the title. Right. Uh, Right, Right. So like, yeah, I've been, I've been sort of following this for a while and getting the chance to like read the book has been a really cool experience. Oh, nice. Um, so, my first question is about like how you ended up interested in the topic and how you ended up getting into it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what about the underground rap scene got you in, in particular interested in this topic and why do you feel like this was an important story to tell?
1: Yeah, you know, I've often thought about this and there's a lot of different ways I could answer it, but truth be told, I feel like you know, hip-hop has always been a part of my life and you know, it was the first musical genre that I really gravitated toward. And I can remember in middle school, I saved up my allowance money. And um, at that time, I wasn't actually allowed to go to the mall unsupervised. So I had my friend um, who was going to the mall buy me um, uh, a copy of Dr. Dre's The Chronic. So this was back in 1992, 1991. And you know, for the longest time, hip-hop had always been um, a genre that just spoke to me. Um, You know, I had never grown up around the kinds of things that I was hearing and listening to in gangster rap, but I had seen uh, this stuff in places that I lived, and I'd also felt some of the sting of racism and, and inequality in my life. And I think that was what sort of always spoke to me about hip-hop, that there was always this um, social critique and commentary that had to deal with racial inequality in the U.S. Um, And I can think about Ice Cube's music uh, back in the day also speaking to me in a similar way. And it really just sort of opened my eyes to a different set of experiences that African-Americans in particular uh, were going through. Uh, particularly around like the Rodney King riots up to and leading into that and afterward. So I think it, it hip hop had always been something that I was interested in. And then as an undergraduate, I had a mentor actually tell me that I should uh, write a senior thesis about hip hop culture or um, a part of the scene that I was immersed in. And so at that time, this was when I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley I had gotten into street dancing and street performance, and I was learning from this um, street dancer named Tron, who performs on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. And you know, I, he sort of introduced me to this whole vibrant world of underground dance, uh, of DJing, uh, b-boying, b-girling, and MCing. So he was this guy who was sort of known in the scene. And he had all these contacts with different people. And um, my professor heard about this and told me I should write about it. And so I just started writing about this world and the the people in it and their experiences and how they got into hip-hop culture. And it was, like, by far the most fun experience I had as a student in my life. Like, I I never imagined that I could turn – things that I actually like to do and people that I like to be around into something academic. And so that really got me excited about possibly going to graduate school and, and maybe doing a similar type of study wherever I landed. And, and so I, I happened to get into UCLA and um, a friend of mine had told me about Project Bloat. And I just went to check it out because I had to turn in an an assignment for my ethnography course. You know, the first assignment was like, uh, go out and find a field site and write about what you see. Um, And so I I happened to hear about Project Bloat and I went there. And, you know, as soon as I got into the scene, I remember a little voice inside of me saying, "Okay, this is what you're going to do. This is um, the scene that you're going to write about. And I... I knew from the first year of graduate school that this was going to be um, a project that would turn into my dissertation and then later this book. So I feel like, and then the second part of your question was sort of about like, I guess, why it was an important story to tell. And I think a big part of me, especially after being exposed to underground hip hop in Berkeley, because up until that point, I, you know, I was mostly just a guy who, Liked mainstream hip hop. Um, you know, I went to high school in the South, and so there was a big, um, you know, like Dirty South scene that was blowing up in the late nineties. Um, and so I was really into that. I, you know, was always into West Coast, uh, G funk, gangster rap, whatever you want to call it. But learning about the underground in the Bay Area um, and, and meeting artists and people who are connected to that world really showed me the complexity and depth of hip hop culture. I I started seeing that there was so much more than just what I had been listening to on the radio or what I had been hearing on, uh, you know, music videos. And so I think that, you know, at a very basic level, my, my interest in, in telling the story about these guys from project blowed was to hopefully contribute to this alternative canon of, of stories and research about a vibrant underground scene that often doesn't have the same kind of mainstream exposure that uh, you know, like the mainstream genres get.
0: Yeah, and and that's the fact that it is underground hip hop does add a particular uh, level to it. And and mm-hmm. and so what I wonder about is like um, when you were bringing this up to academics, people at UCLA, like how right. receptive were they to it? Because I imagine that someone who's not into the culture the way that you or I might be. Right, hear hip hop, and they think you know of uh, A, B, and C artists, maybe like yeah, yeah. Lil John, stuff like that. And so, yeah, yeah, uh, how receptive were people to what you wanted to do? Um,
1: I would say in general very supportive. I think most people that I spoke to, most of my mentors and colleagues at the time, um, were very excited about it, and I think they could see how it would connect to. Uh, a, a kind of larger genre of urban ethnography on the experiences of young African-American men. Um, so I think in general, there was support. I do remember some people mentioning to me just kind of in passing that they thought it was a little risky. They they, they, they would say stuff like, you know, hip hop is really popular now, but what if it's not popular in five, 10 years or whenever you finish your PhD? Um You know, how are you going to deal with that? And in my mind, I just kind of tuned that out. One, because I knew hip hop was not a fad. I knew that hip hop had been around for 30 plus years and it was only growing and evolving. But two, I also thought, and I got this great piece of advice from another mentor who kind of said, you know, no matter what you end up doing in graduate school or in your academic career, you have to choose something that you're inspired to write about you have to choose something that you're passionate about something that when you're out with your friends or when you're um, sitting at home just chilling out that you're thinking about it constantly and that you're really genuinely looking forward to sitting down and writing about and to me that was always hip-hop like this project was something that I always thought about and it was fun and exciting and I you know I honestly don't know what would have happened if, for example, I didn't get the you know, permission or support to do this project. Um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine at that point in my life getting through all of the different hurdles that exist in grad school, You know, all the exams, all of the classes, the proposal, writing the chapters of the dissertation. It's hard for me to imagine doing all of that without a project that I was in love with, that without writing about something that I was deeply passionate about. So I guess yeah, it's a long answer to say mostly supportive. Some people were a little skeptical, but then I just tuned that out, and I said, you know, this is what I want to do, um, regardless of if it's a fad or if people don't really understand like why, uh, you know, it's so interesting to me. I, I should also mention that it really helped me having uh, one of my mentors at the time, and still to this day, is this guy named uh, H. Sami Alim who is a, a hip-hop linguist. And he had just gotten hired at UCLA as a postdoc, and then he later got a job in their anthropology department. Um, and then he, he later moved. But during the time when I was finishing my dissertation, um, you know, he was very supportive. He created a uh, hip-hop working group where it, it was an interdisciplinary group of people from anthropology, uh, linguistics, history education sociology who who are all doing dissertations on hip-hop and it was like a you know like an amazing amazing little group of folks we read each other's work um we uh helped 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 each other out preparing for conferences you know we did everything and it was really like a support group as well so i think that that was also a big thing that helped me um get through and it, it 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 kind of helped having this like community of folks who are also super, super passionate about
0: hip hop. So ethnography, right? It's, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk in ethnography about, you know, insider and outsider identity. Right. And in the book you talk about, you know, how you sort of started to feel like an insider during the defending the block, you know, when, uh, when everyone rolled up and, and Mm -hmm. you know, you had to defend uh, your turf basically. Right. So, I was wondering, can you recount defending the block, uh, just for the listeners, and some of your struggles with insider identity, and whether you ever ended up feeling accepted in like one of the Blodians?
1: Sure, for sure. So, this was, um, you know, when I think back, probably one of the big turning points in this project, because when I first started out in the scene, um, I initially met many of the dancers who are also. Locals at Project Blowed, and one of them was this street performer who I talk about in the book um, named tick lot And Tick-A-Lot, you know, is this uh, old school pop locker from Compton who was widely loved and respected by all of the rappers in the scene. And, you know, he would often perform with rappers when they performed at Project Blowed and elsewhere. Um, so he kind of took me under his wing as his mentee. Uh, but a lot of people didn't really know that I was a dancer. They just thought that I was some guy from UCLA who was hanging out and, you know, just sort of taking in the scene. So one night we're hanging out really late in the, or really early into the morning hours. And most of the people have gone home. There's still kind of like a crowd of like the hardcore regulars. And there's a caravan of cars, um, Cruising down Crenshaw Boulevard, they circle Lamert Park, which is uh, on the, I guess it's the east side of Crenshaw Boulevard, and they pull over and they 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 pull into these little parking spots across the street from Project Blow, which is across from Lamert Park, um, and one by one the doors swing open and you know a bunch of. Crump dancers start hopping out of their cars, one after another. Um, and for listeners who are not familiar with crump dancing, it's another style of hip-hop inspired dance that comes out of South Central LA that's um, a much more new school style of dance, and it's very high energy. And it's it's kind of its own thing. Um, it's it's considered part of like the kind of world of hip-hop dance, but it's it tends to not be considered or seen as part of the same generational, I guess, um, dance as like B-boying or B-girling or break dancing or pop, popping and locking, which are kind of considered, um, the classical, I guess, styles of dance within underground hip hop culture. So people on the block were like looking at these crump dancers and going like, man, who are these cats? And, they're dancing and they're creating this huge scene um, and Lot comes out and he walks out and, and Lot is somebody who just has like this unshaking, uh, unshakable swagger. Like he, he sees them and without even saying or doing anything, he, puts, he starts unzipping his duffel bag, which he carries around with him. It has all of these props that he uses whenever he performs like in Hollywood or other parts of LA um, doing street performance. And so he starts putting on his gloves, he puts on his mask um that he sometimes wears like it's like his Halloween mask, and he starts like popping in the middle of the street and calls out this whole crew of like ten or eleven uh crump dancers, and so he starts battling them one after another, and he's like serving them like he's like uh dominating each of them like they would come out and do something, and then he would top it he would do something that would uh like up the ante and top what they had just done. Um, but after about five or s- six minutes of that, he starts to get really tired because he's going against these like younger dancers and there's a whole crew of them. So they're taking turns and they're resting in between rounds. And then he like pulls off to the side of the circle and there's a huge circle now of people from project blowed and also from um, like one of the jazz clubs around the corner they're all standing around in, this, in, in the middle of the street watching this battle. And he kind of like pulls his mask off for a second and tells me, he's like, Hey, man, you got to get my back. You got to get my back. Um, and before I can say no, he nudges me into the circle. Um, and now at this point, I'm like, Oh, man, Like I'm very nervous and I'm worried that I'm somehow going to mess up and bring shame to myself and also uh, to the guys at Project Bloat. Uh, because at this point it was it was very much like Tickle Lot is defending the block against these outsiders who are trying to come in and take over the spot, um, and so I started dancing and at first like I think you know like I was nervous and I wasn't hitting the beat and this is something that Tickle Lot and I had worked on a lot. Um, this is sort of like his big critique of me back in those days was that I would just do a bunch of tricks and moves but without actually doing it to the beat. So I start slowing down and eventually I find my like way and um, people, I could tell by people's expressions that I was doing better and people from project blowed and, and the scene started cheering um, and people from the other side, this, this uh, crew of crump dancers were kind of like surprised maybe, or they, they look surprised. And so I, I kind of, you know, noted this in my book because the next week when I came back to the scene, um, when I came back to Project Bloat, everybody was talking about the battle. They're like, oh, you should have been here. Tikala and this other dude uh, served these guys. Um, And I noticed that from that point on, people saw me in a little bit of a different light. It wasn't like I was just some guy that uh, was around, like, they would invite me to come and do stuff. Like, they would invite me to come to their concert, and they would say, hey, can you come? And when I get on stage, can you open up a dance circle right in front of the stage? Can Can you get it hyped? Or they would say, um, can you come? And, uh, like, I danced in this guy's uh, music video. Uh, he was recording a music video at his house, this guy, Evil Crimson. Um, he was like, can you dance in my video? I want to have this scene where, you know, you and some other dancers just start getting down. Um, so, yeah, I noticed that it really changed the way people saw me. But as I mentioned in the book, you know, like sometimes I think ethnographers can get seduced by the familiarity of their relationships with people in this, in the field. Or they can feel as if they've crossed this like imaginary threshold that because people refer to you, as an insider and people still call me a bloodian like back then they called me a bloodian and you know in my interactions with people even today they still say uh they they still call me fam or they still call me a bloodian um but in spite of this like label and in spite of how people were treating me I was also you know very aware of my own privilege as an outsider um I was aware that I was somebody going to UCLA Studying for a sociology PhD. And I was also aware that, you know, when I would go to these different neighborhoods, like I was interviewing people who lived in very different gang neighborhoods across the city, that I never once worried about somebody seeing me and thinking that I was from another neighborhood set or a gang. Um, That I had this uh, the benefit of being a racial outsider, you know, being a Korean guy in these neighborhoods. I Neighborhoods, I never posed a threat. Like people didn't see me as somebody who could potentially be a threat in any way. Um, I think mostly people were just curious. They were sort of uh, wondering like what I was doing. And I noticed that you know my status as a racial outsider actually uh, helped me a lot because people would come up to me and ask me, "Hey, what are you doing here? Like, are you are you doing a documentary? Are you?" are you here for a school project or something? And then it would lead to me telling them about this project. And then um, because I was an outsider, a lot of people would, um, you know, they would say, oh, oh, you want to know about that? Let let me, let me, let me introduce you to my people. Let me, let me introduce you to uh, these people I know that would be great for that. Or, um, you know, they would want to become my guide into this, this other part of the underground. So, I think that's a long way of answering your question. I hope.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting to me, like that—that uh, that despite you, um, you know, actively participating in in this culture and being considered, you know, part of the the Blodian, mm-hmm. um the Blodians, I guess, that mm-hmm. that they, you're still sort of reluctant to call yourself an insider or even claim to have much insider knowledge. I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think that that comes back to like the you know like how our biographies and our um, who we are at the end of the day matters. You know that I was afforded the privilege of going there and leaving, and of bouncing around different neighborhoods. Um, And you know, like I'll never forget, like talking to talking to uh, different. MCs that i was writing about and they would tell me stuff about the things that they had been through just in just in the one week since i'd seen them like they would say you know i got pulled over by the police just driving a car that is my car or they would say you know these uh these gang members like start like started like hitting me up when i came out of walmart you know and i thought like i never had to deal with any of that like that i was living in this totally different reality um and participating in the scene and having fun and making making friendships and relationships with people. But I, I never had to do that. And so that was the the part of me that I guess when I was writing the book, I, I I sort of pumped my brakes on talking about being an insider or an outsider. And I I think that, you know, in a way, the way I'd explain it is that I was seen as somebody who was down or somebody who was competent and who was cool and somebody who was trustworthy. But um, you know, the insider label I think presumes too much, uh, at least for me. Like it presumes like too much of a uh, of a similarity to the people that you're writing about that, you know, I- I'm not comfortable saying.
0: Right. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Your focus or you focus heavily on the positive potential of hip hop for young black men in LA. Or at least mm-hmm. that's how I read it, uh in the book. Mm-hmm. Um I found this interesting in contrast to the discipline of sociology, which is usually thought of as, like, hyper-negative. You know, we're describing how everything's terrible and awful. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, like, did you initially set out to focus on the so-called positive aspects of hip-hop, or did that come about through the research? Mm-hmm. And, and well, <laughs> the last part of this is, do you think of this book as a defense of hip-hop culture? Because you do talk about like John McWhorter, right, and and those kinds of folks, and so that's part, partially how I was reading it. A lot of times, it was like, you right, know, these people say hip hop is A, B, and C. Yeah, well, actually, if you actually get into it, it's not.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The first question, definitely. Like I, so I started off just trying to document everything that I was seeing, and that was in large part born out of my training. So my, I learned how to do field methods from a guy named Bob Emerson. And Bob Emerson was trained kind of through the, the Chicago school style of doing field work where when you go out and write field notes, you're really just trying your best to vividly describe everything that you see and hear. And I really took that to heart and I tried to constantly practice um, writing my field notes in a way that um, would, would shy away from analysis and just would really focus on trying to document everything happening in the scene. Um, and so the more I did this and the more time that I spent with these young men, the more I saw that uh, I guess the story was emerging that hip-hop was this um, this creative space for these young men who were growing up in difficult circumstances, and that was something that also came through in the interviews, through their own voices. That was confirmed when I would ask them questions to, refl- you know, and I asked them to reflect on, you know, how they got into hip hop and the larger meanings hip hop had for them as young men. So it definitely came through in the, the research. I, you know, I didn't necessarily start off with the idea that that it would be about that. Like my initial charge was really. I just want to document everything, and um, I think over time, you know, after spending almost five years just uh, constantly doing this, I I saw that that was like the more that was the most prominent theme that came through all of my notes and interview transcripts and so forth. Um, And the second part, yeah, I do I do think of it as somewhat of a defense of hip hop. Um, I do I do think that a lot of so i wouldn 't say a lot, but I would say there are there is a wing of academic writing and popular writing that kind of still demonizes hip hop culture. It talks about it as um you know this this lifestyle or culture that teaches young african American uh, men in particular bad values um, and that it's it's a culture that celebrates misogyny and violence and I mean, these critiques are true at some level, uh, particularly the the critiques about the music, of mainstream music being uh, a genre that glorifies uh, violence and misogyny. Um, That part is true, but um, the purpose of the book is to peel beneath the mainstream and to show, again, this this underground world and how it's lived and experienced by practitioners. Um, And so... You know, I, I, I definitely see this as a, as a way to kind of represent a side of hip hop culture that's sometimes lost when we only look at lyrics or when we only look at snapshots of music videos or images, and then we um, use those to kind of infer how people make sense of them. And then we say that, you know, this, this whole culture that's very complex and multifaceted is somehow responsible for reproducing inequality. Um, so I take issue with that largely because that's not what I was seeing you know the, the young people that I was following around um, hip hop to them was not um, not that. It was a, uh, a a safe space for them away from gangs. It was a, a community where they made friends with other people who were similarly um, inclined creatively um, It was a it was a fun outlet for them. It was cathartic. So there were all these different aspects of hip-hop culture that I think get kind of uh, glossed over when when critics like McWhorter for example only focus on uh, lyrics. You know, they, they look at lyrics or they look at images and then they draw a connection to um, things like inequality and poverty. That was I, I think, you yeah, know, I do see it as a in some ways a defense of hip-hop.
0: The book, it, it's it's a book about race in a lot of ways, but uh, many times, particularly in the more descriptive parts, it felt like race kind of faded into the background. This might just be my reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are your thoughts about the presence of race, both in the book and in the LA underground rap scene? It's like, what did race mean for you and your fellow Bloodians? So,
1: I think I think you know that was an interesting question, um, and I mean. I think the book is very much about race, and I I tried to um, initially set it up as a story about the unique structural forces that are shaping the the life chances of young African-American men who are coming of age in you know the shadows of these gangs in L.A. and in uh, urban cities more generally. Um, and I think maybe you know, with the descriptive parts, what I try to do in the book is really just tell the stories in a compelling way. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe some of the things that you're responding to are more about the, the stylistic choices that I made throughout the, some of the center chapters, because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to bring up a lot of the, I guess the larger, structural significance and the theoretical significance in the introduction. And of course, again, in the conclusion, um, and I wanted the, I think I wanted the, the body of the book to really, uh, take readers along for the journey in a sense. Um, and so I think maybe that was part of partially, um, at least my experience writing it. And in terms of race, <clears throat> um, I mean, the interesting thing about hip hop as well, and there was another version of the book or another version of a chapter of the book that um, ended up kind of changing after revisions and multiple revisions. But one of the things about hip hop culture is that it's not only a space that provides a common ground or common area for young black men from different neighborhoods in South Central Um, but it's also a, a, a scene and a culture as you're probably aware that, um, brings people from different racial ethnic groups and ethnicities and into the same space. Um, and so it becomes like a, a glue that, that bonds all these different people together who, who might not otherwise, um, hang out or, or get together on that level. So, you know, that was something that was very prominent in a phase of my field work because I was spending a lot of time outside of Project Bloat as well and I was documenting other scenes that um, sometimes the Bloodians would go and perform in and I would you know, see like, the diversity of these spaces and how hip-hop was this uh, you know like Eli Anderson for example talks about the Cosmopolitan Canopy and he, he remarks, like drawing from observations in places like Philadelphia, that there are these places in cities that um, sort of bring people together from different walks of life who might not otherwise mingle. And, and I think hip-hop is kind of like one of these canopies. It's not a public place per se, but it's a uh, activity or a culture that, that sort of does the same thing. It brings people together who might not otherwise uh, hang out. And so I I always thought of that as a very interesting part of the story as well. Um, But you know, when I guess one thing I learned in writing this book is that there are actually more stories that you end up omitting than you include. And 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 the hard thing about writing a book is sometimes you choose a particular story to tell, and then that becomes kind of the the I guess the hook for the book it becomes the 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 guiding or orienting theme and then other chapters and other ideas um suddenly then don't fit into the scheme so yeah, one of the earlier drafts of the project had uh, a chapter or part of a chapter that kind of looked at you know hip-hop as this multicultural umbrella of sorts that drew people together from various different walks of life um uh, you know various different racial and ethnic groups but you know like in in finally writing the final draft of the book um, and going through multiple revisions you know the 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 theme changed and it became much more about the young black man that I had uh, befriended um, and their stories kind of uh, emerged as the leading ones
0: right so yeah that's that's sort of what I what I saw in the book like I said it was a book about race uh, in the very structural sense, right? Like you're saying, you know, uh, segregation, racism is put – in And right. the criminal justice system is putting these people in this particular mm-hmm. uh, precarious position. But also uh, what I meant by race fade in, in the back is like what you were just talking about is hip-hop is a multicultural thing. Right. Um, so like the personal everyday experience of race, whereas, I don't know, if you're in like a um, – let's say a super rich college campus private mm-hmm. school like race is sort of constantly in your face right right um whereas it it was my feeling from from reading the book is that mm-hmm. that maybe race sort of while it was st- structuring almost everything around you um, right it wasn't necessarily in the the like the lived experience of it if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, initially when I got there, I was like one of the few Asian guys who was part of the scene, but over time, um like that never just that just never came up again. Uh and the only time it would come up was in my own thoughts or in conversations with people when they would tell me about their experiences and I would say, "Wow, like You know, I have never. I don't even know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to go to the store and then uh, feel like at risk of being being jumped by gang members. Like, I don't know what that's like. Um, So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like, I would go to the go to different shows and it wouldn't be an issue. And it and it it ceased kind of being so prevalent or visible at least in my interactions with people once I got to really know them well.
0: Further on this point of race. Um, so the content of the book in the latter half is about blowing up, you know, getting big, getting fans, and getting exposure. Mm-hmm. And though this is a book about young black men and Project Blood, arguably the biggest name to come out of the collective is Dumbfounded, right. Korean American. At least in my experience, the two biggest names were Dumbfounded and No Can Do. Those are the two people I heard about before I even knew what Project Blood was. So I'm right. wondering what your thoughts are on his success in comparison to other Project Blood members, and right. the, sort of the racial implications of his success.
1: Right. Well, I know one thing. I mean, I know that um, people in the scene, like other Blodians are very proud of Dumbfounded and, uh, you know, anybody else who comes out of the scene and who does well, because there's sort of this feeling that it's a validation of their training. It's a validation of like the hard work that everybody had put into to perfecting the craft and getting better as MCs um but I think his story is interesting because it, I think on one hand it just points to um how you know a lot of this this game a lot of this pursuit is really ju- some of it just comes down to luck some of it comes down just to dumb luck that like a person might make a contact with somebody who then introduces that person or passes their demo along and then they get invited to go on a tour and um, it opens a, a pathway for them. Um, so I think part of it is really just like, you know, cause there's this kind of popular perception that if you make it and you're like a, uh, you know, assigned artist in the music industry or you're like, you know, somebody like dumbfounded who became kind of uh, pretty well known in amongst underground hip-hop heads, that you must be, that there is this kind of notion of meritocracy, that you must be there because you are um, qualitatively better than your peers. But that's not true. Um, That's not the case, at at least not in hip-hop. I I don't know what it's like for other musical genres, but in hip-hop culture, that's not the case. Um, And I first learned about that kind of through the experiences of of older rappers who had been around and who had defeated some other very famous rappers when they were in their prime during like battle circuits. And um, that kind of, you know, I guess showed me that like, you know, who makes it and who's skilled are not necessarily always in alignment. That's not to say that Dumbfound's not incredibly talented. Um, It's just to say that that, you know, his experience... I don't think can really be boiled down to anything. I mean, I think that there are that luck plays an important role in everything we in, in these pursuits. But the other thing I think that it says is that um, I think young black men face a steeper challenge, if you will, trying to blow up and trying to make it, largely because their images of what is acceptable black masculinity is so prefigured and it's so narrow. At least in the mainstream world, Um, and so there's much. It's much harder, for example, for a young black man to get noticed in the hip hop game uh, if they're trying to do something different. And this came through a lot in my interactions with people in the music industry, and also people who had um, been talking to A and R's and people working in the music industry. Like they would get. They would have an interview with somebody who had an in and the person who had an in would say, you know, you're really talented, but I just don't know. Like the image, you you know, it's hard to really like figure out like what what image you're going for. And then sometimes it would be even more overt. People would say stuff like, um, you know, this is great, but it would be better if you rapped about being a gang member or being, uh, you know, like rapping that, that jiggy music. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like Chingy is a great embodiment of that. So, you know, young black men have this like structure that they face where um, if they come at this genre a, a different way, um, a lot of times they would come up with resistance. People would see that as being hard to market to an audience. Um, and No Can Do is a great example of somebody who's kind of carved out a space for himself in the underground um doing his own thing and not conforming to that image of that hyper masculine identity in mainstream hip hop culture. You know, he's like a very he's like a very authentic representation of who he is in his everyday life, in his musical self. Um, but you know, with No Can Do's example, his his success has been created because he has um, you know worked really hard at creating these opportunities for himself and others in his circle, you know, he's he's worked with indie labels and then <clears throat> organized his own kind of events and 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 worked kind of at a grassroots level for years and years and years to to be where he is today. Um, yeah, so you know, the dumbfounded thing is a very interesting thing because he, uh, you know, for whatever reason, has kind of emerged as the most, I guess, recognizable name from that that generation. Uh, But I think some of it really is just that there are – like some of it can just be luck because there are lots of people who are working just as hard, putting in the same amount of hours and, um, you know, for whatever reason, they haven't had the same kind of breakthrough.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting when you're talking about like the narrow conceptions of uh, like black male masculinity and uh, with this particular group like Project Bloat. I remember I was looking through the Wikipedia page of like all the uh all of like the names that have really come out of it and mm-hmm. I think a lot of them do sort of buck that conception mm-hmm. uh, like uh No Can Do is one I think mm-hmm. Open Mike yep uh, is definitely another even like Pigeon John I didn't know that he was uh, yeah. in it but yeah so that's uh, that's interesting Yeah
1: and and I think you know as an Asian guy as a Korean American dude dumbfounded has more leeway to to be true and authentic to who he is like he can release songs that are not just about like you know being a pimp or being a gangster or something like he can write songs that are representative of you know his talents and his skills and his interests and that's something that underground artists struggle with a lot like they become supremely talented freestyle rappers. They become good at battling. They write songs that actually uh, a lot of times are, are either uh, social commentaries on larger issues or just like commentaries on their life, like day-to-day, everyday life. Um, but these are not the kinds of things that people working at labels are really um, gravitating toward because it's not an image that sells as, as popularly. You know, especially when you're, you're you're associating it with black masculinity, then it becomes a much different set of images uh, that people working in the industry are trying to reproduce.
0: So, one thing I'm wondering about, just on this topic, is how, how much does the community itself sort of regulate this? Because I'm thinking about uh, recently, the there's a group on the East Coast called the the Pro Era. This rapper Troy adds or diss them. He said, "You know, you make weirdo rap, mm-hmm. and uh, it's partly because their raps are aren't about like the usual sort of mm-hmm. um, popular conceived of thing." So, in Project Blow, did you get a sense that it was regulated differently? Like maybe it wouldn't have been as accepted to rap, however people wanted to.
1: Um, you mean in terms of like not rapping like you're a mainstream rapper or? Yeah. Um, there's some of that for sure. There's definitely some diehards, um, in the scene who were very much, who kind of saw themselves as people who are continuing the tradition of freestyle fellowship and other underground artists who had come before the generation that I was writing about. So there are definitely people in that world who were just heavily, heavily immersed in underground hip hop, like they would only listen to jazz music or only bump records produced by Jay Dilla. And, um, you know, like they were like purveyors of golden age hip hop. Like they would talk about how everything after like 1995 or 96 was like trash. And there was like a real kind of Renaissance feeling for like the backpack underground hip hop rapper, But there were, you know, the scene was very diverse internally, and there were also other people, like, um, you know, some of the main characters that I befriended in the process. um, People like Big Flossie or Flawless, um, and even this guy named CP that I write about, who had a very different aesthetic, who had one that was much more closely aligned with, kind of like West Coast gangster rap. Um, but with a little bit of an underground edge to it. And, you know, so there, the scene was, I think, I, I don't think there was any formal policing about like, you know, what you can sound like or what you, uh, how your image should be. But I think the golden rule at Project Blow was always that no matter what skill you uh, or, or what style you try to rhyme in and how you present yourself, that you had to, you had to really bring it like it, it, there was no um leeway for somebody to be weak and, and to be whack and to 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 lack confidence like if you were going to jump in a cipher or get on stage in the open mic you had to really bring it and and i think that was the number one criteria cuz there were there were other styles there too it wasn't just like backpack hip hop and gangster rappers um there were also people who were very um political and really into conscious hip-hop and so that was a a little bit of a different scene than than like the backpack scene um and so i think that was the number one thing if you were going to get on the mic or jump in the cypher you had to really come with it and it, it wasn't a place for the faint of heart you know you had to really bring it or else people were going to tell you that you were whack <laughs> i mean it was it's it's not that different from graduate school in some ways. You know, when oh, yeah. you sit <laughs> you submit a seminar paper and it comes back just like bleeding and track changes. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: like there's a, there's a brutal honesty, but that's part of the socialization process to get better. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. That's uh, an interesting analogy. So that's the equivalent of being called trash in graduate school. Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. So my last question is about King of the o- and grind mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. Uh, because that's actually how I, uh, sort of found out who dumbfounded and no can do were initially All right. Um, right for listeners that don't know King of the dot and grind time are two uh battle rap sort of i don't know youtube sensations uh, that's that's how I discovered them at least, so mm-hmm. two people rapping at each other mm-hmm. and I was wondering um when it comes to grind time now and uh King of the dot, what you thought about it and what project or what Blodians thought about it um because. The, yeah. These are usually written raps, and right. my understanding of the culture is that you know you, you go out there and freestyle, and if you have written, you're sort of you get mm. blown up about it, like uh, like yeah. Drake rapping off his uh, BlackBerry. Right, um, people sort of made fun of him for a long time after that, and so right. the fact that the the some of these prominent blodians actually went into that, I was wondering your thoughts on that and what your sense was of written.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at the time there was a lot of excitement because this was, uh, I think, grind time was actually emerging when I was kind of midway through my field work. And they had actually come to LA to film some episodes, and a bunch of Blodians participated in uh, that when they came out. So CP was in that, uh, he was hosting it, uh, Verbs was in that, who's also in the book. This guy named Satire was in it, who was also part of that same crew with Verbs and Open Mic. Um, so there was a grip of people who who went out and filmed and, di- and, and did this thing. And I think at first people really saw it as like, this is another avenue through which I can blow up. Um, another way that I can get my name and my image and my music out there. People will see me beyond the local setting. And you know, some people did really well. Like you know, you mentioned No Can Do and Dumbfounded, and there are a couple other artists like Verbs, um, who who started to really perform at a lot of these events and kind of got a, a little bit of a little more notoriety through them. Um, but I also know just from talking to people who have participated in these events, and just from the purists in the scene, that um, they, there's sort of a skepticism about. I think what they represent now and largely because of what you mentioned that because these things are so heavily choreographed and, and like, you know, your opponent ahead of time and they're built sort of like these like super fights almost where people come in with like an hour worth of custom tailored disses just for their opponent. And I mean, I think that as a casual viewer, it's very entertaining to watch because you know, the, the rhyme schemes and like the, the the disses are so like complex and well thought out and polished. Um, But I know that amongst a lot of the kind of core from project blow that people would say, you know, this isn't really battling in the same way. Like this isn't the same kind of battle that, um, you know, we used to see on the corner outside of project blow that it like, it's sort of seen as a watered down version of, the real thing, which is really like you're in a cipher with somebody else and for whatever reason um, you two start butting heads. Uh, Maybe you feel like you've been cut off or maybe you feel like the other person is throwing subliminal disses at you. Whatever the case may be, the battle kind of at Project Bloat and at least from my understanding in a lot of underground scenes is supposed to be this kind of very pure, impromptu way that people who have a beef can, can resolve it without turning to violence. So I think, you know, like I, I, I did talk to people, I won't name who it is, but I do, I do know some other people who participated in these events and they said that, you know, um, they knew about the event for like months and months, but then they would, they would prepare like the day before they would just kind of like, uh, procrastinate and write up a bunch of dishes and then go in and, and like, uh, kill it. And so I think you know like a lot of the MCs from Project Blue were so used to um just always kind of improvising and and uh doing things in the moment that uh this was no big deal to them uh, but you know like for me as a as a fan like I enjoy them to an extent but some of them I I just can't get into because I know that they're just so heavily scripted and there's something Like, I'll say this there's something that's really magical and special about somebody coming up with a diss that is just so perfectly timed and is, uh, you know, a rebuttal to something that the person said in that moment uh, that you can't replicate with just really clean and polished, like, disses and sequences where you're just uh, throwing a barrage of insults at somebody. Like, there's something about just like, Being able to flip the script or offer a quick rebuttal that's immediately referencing what somebody said to you, which you know, like that level of improvisation and spontaneity is missing in these battles, and I think that's why you know, like some of the purists, for example, might not um, participate in them anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get what you're talking about in terms of the spontaneity. Um, Yeah, I can't remember the battle. In your book, but uh, the guy responds, "You bleed food." And I was like,
1: <laughs> oh, oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, I remember that was uh, E. Crimson and Big Flossy one night. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I, just reading that, I, I could feel like the the hurt like, and how angry I would be if, uh, if that. You know,
1: like, damn. Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's something that came out of uh, just in that moment. You know, like so. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's something precious that's missing in these these other kinds of battles that are so choreographed
0: all right um so that's that's it for my questions i I appreciate the interview
1: yeah no i appreciate it thank you for reaching out to me man i really um i'm grateful for all of the, the support
0: This week's episode of Office Hours featuring Ju Young Lee was produced and hosted by me, Matthew Aguilar-Champeau, as a part of the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more written content about the sociology of culture and other kinds of social science research at thesocietypages.org.